listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Morning, guys. My name is Will. Brad's not here. You already realize this. Uh, and typically, I work with the high school and the middle school youth, although this is probably above almost anything on the planet, what I love doing. And so I'm glad to be here. We're, we're going to be in the same text, Mark chapter 9. And so if you want, you can go ahead and flip there now in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. And as you're flipping to find it, I believe it's on page 844 if you're looking for it. Let me get set up and then we'll rock and roll. Okay, I've only got two points this morning. I'm going to toss those up in just a minute. But before we do, I, I kind of want to prime the pump for something that you're going to hear me say an awful lot this morning. And it's a question directed to us um, as people who are either seeking after Christ, or if you're here, you're at least entertaining the thought of seeking after Christ. And the question is this, what is it that you, who is it that you are lifting up? I mean, let me tell you what I mean. So I'm not big into basketball. Um, one, because I'm not tall now, and when I was younger, I was even less not tall, or more not tall, however that works out. And I went to one basketball meeting, and I sat there. It was in middle school, Fort Middle School, down the way, and I sat there, and I looked at the guys around me, and I never showed back up again. But when March Madness hits, I'll watch, I'll watch a game, if it's in the last half and it's close. Like that, that is my, and here's all that I really watch it for. I watch it for the last 30 seconds. I watch it for the chance for the guy to drain a three as the buzzer goes off and everybody goes nuts. And what do his teammates do? They run up and they grab him and they lift him up. Same thing, football, quarterback hits a great touchdown pass. Receiver's doing his dance, you know, whatever it is that he's doing. Camera flashes back to the quarterback, and he's running, and one of his linemen grab him by the quarterback pads, and they lift him up. Now, this doesn't just happen in sports. Same thing happens in business. Maybe in the place that you work, there's um, some plaque for quarterly sales figures, or maybe it's just a picture of the employee of the month or whatever it is. But whoever that person is and whatever accolade they receive, they don't put it in the back closet. They take it out and they put it on the wall and they put it up on the wall so that they are recognized for whatever great deed they did or amazing sales numbers that they had. They're recognized for that, but then also so that other people, when they look, they kind of aspire to whatever the level of greatness was that caused them to be lifted up. Military is the same way. When you receive um, some type of medal or accolade or stripe for services done, great deeds rendered, it's not put in a box and then hid in your closet. It's not left. No, it's put on your dress uniform so that people can see it. And, and I'm not bashing. That, to be honest with you, I played tennis, and you're like not allowed to cheer and things like that in tennis. And so... My doubles partner never ran and lifted me up. Uh, the closest, maybe, one time I hit a home run uh, in church league softball. Very competitive. Uh, and I feel like when I made it back to the dugout, someone may, like Stokes may have grabbed me. And he certainly could have lifted me. I don't know. But I struck out in the next at bat anyway to end the season. And so it was immediately humbled right back down. But my, my point in bringing this up to you is simply this. The idea of being lifted up, it, it's not new in our culture. 
You know, we sing the song, or I don't know how old it is. I'm never good at knowing when worship songs are. I'm looking to you right now, so you can just give me the, mm-hmm. But that song, to see you high lifted, that's old. That's real old. How did I sound? It wasn't bad? Okay. That was the, mo- that was the part of the song I was the most worried about right there, was singing. I, I don't sing well. Um, but, but the idea of he is high and lifted up. When, when we look at scripture and it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Why is every knee bowing? Because when we get low, the person who we are bowing to becomes high. You, you, you see what I'm saying? We, we can look in scripture. And, and I'm, not, I'm not dogging our culture for people doing great things. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. And as we are working heartily for the Lord, great deeds are going to be done. The Bible tells us that. Even Jesus says, and greater deeds will be done than these. And so I'm not bashing that, but what I am asking is, when that happens, who or what are we lifting up? Because that tells us everything about our heart. And we can read this in 1 Peter 5. It's also in James 4. 1 Peter 5 Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so when we're trying to climb the ladder, whether it's the corporate ladder or whatever else it is, it doesn't have to be corporate, it could be social. When we're trying to climb this ladder, the higher we get, we basically align ourselves with the builders of the Tower of Babel. And we're trying to say, look at me and look at what I've done Look at what I've accomplished. When we do that, God looks down, and because of his nature and his holiness, God opposes the proud. You can imagine the hand of God coming and pushing that person down, their chin hitting every rung of the ladder on the way down. But to the humble, he leans down and he shows grace and mercy, and he lifts them up. Let me give you uh, my two points for this morning. If you're a note taker, and if you're not, just so that you can have your mind oriented in that direction. Number one, when we seek our own glory, we are indistinguishable from the world. When we seek our own glory, we are indistinguishable from the world. We look just like everything else out there. Point two, but when we serve as Christ served, we display distinction and bring him glory. The, uh, the ironic thing of it is, when we try to stand out, we never do. And, and that was God's design. It's when we allow ourselves to be humble and not be recognized that God says, that person, now you're going to be brought to the forefront. Because you didn't want the glory, you wanted me to have the glory in the first place. When, when we are desiring to seek our own glory, we're indistinguishable from the world. Let's pray, and then we're going to get into Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for your goodness to us in so, so many ways. The fact that we even have your word in front of us to read and learn from, to to learn our need for repentance of sin. But Father, that it's not just a dark story, but that the light of the gospel comes in, that you rescue sinners while we were still sinners. Christ died for the ungodly and you put us on a path of life that is not only better for us in this world, but is better for us for all eternity so long as we are seeking your glory and not our own. And Father, as we're reading through this text, I pray that we would rightly put ourselves in this scripture, that we would recognize how many times in life what we're most concerned about is how others perceive us, how we're viewed, what people think, 
rather than letting that fall to the side, letting that slavery fall to the side and freely seeking the glory of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us able for this task. I pray that your spirit would attend to us as we read and and as we worship you this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so Mark 9, chapter 30. And just to give you a little bit um, of a context, if you were here last week or if you weren't, what Brad talked about was this story where the disciples, they're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And while they're there, there's this boy, and he has an unclean spirit, and it's caused him to be mute. It's that beautiful scripture where the father says, I do believe, help my unbelief. But what happens is the disciples, and we can be honest at this point, Jesus has a following. People are starting to come. People are recognizing who he is, and they're recognizing the people that are with him, his disciples. And the disciples go to deal with this, probably in somewhat of a cocky manner, and they can't handle it. And Jesus turns to them and and, and he says, you can't do this except by prayer. In other words, you can't do this. God does this. It's not about you. It's not about what you can do and the power that you have and what that means for you. It's about me. It's about God, the Father. Caesarea Philippi is up north. And the only reason I mention that is because lucky you, you're going to get to have a geography lesson in about five minutes. So get excited. Get your notes ready. I want to see some good graphs and charts at the end of this. We will be grading the ones that are left behind. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Look in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, and let's let's dig in. They went on from there, being Caesarea Philippi, and they passed through Galilee. This is the region where they were. And he, being Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This comes to completion later on in Mark chapter 14. But one of the things that I find interesting is this. Why does Jesus share something with them that they don't comprehend? Take it a step further. If you look up this the, the context of what is happening here in the Gospel of Luke, it says that they were kept from understanding. And so I'm sitting here thinking, is there ever a benefit in telling someone something they cannot currently understand? Is there ever a benefit in you telling someone something they can't currently understand? The answer is yes. One, because Jesus did it. He's not wasting his time and he's not wasting his words. He's certainly not wasting any of his words that are going to be found in this book that thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions are going to be reading and discerning who God is from it. So why say something to someone who currently can't understand it? Let me give you just a super simple illustration. Probably the most common illustration ever given. I have a two-year-old. His name is Thaddeus. And when Karen Ann's cooking in the oven, he wants to be playing on his little horse or whatever it is, right by whatever the most dangerous thing is in the house. Whatever that is, that's where my two-year-old wants to be. Daddy's cutting the grass. I want to try to dive under that, right? Mommy's cooking. Ooh, that'd be a fun place to play and see how much I can stand on a chair with one leg. You you get what I'm saying? This is my two-year-old. And so what do I say? I say, Mommy's cooking in the oven. Do not touch it. It will... It'll burn you. Well, here's the thing. Until he touches it, 
He has no concept of that word burn. I might as well say to him, and I could. This is kind of a crazy thing now that I think about it. As the amount of power that we have as parents. I could say, don't touch the oven. It'll you. And then the moment he does, he's going to be like, oh, I know what it means. I could make words up because his own experience is going to define it. So when I use the word burn that he has no concept of, is it effective to do so? Yeah, absolutely. And let me tell you why. I think it does two things. And let me tell you how this parallels with what Jesus is telling his disciples. One, it facilitates learning. When I tell my son, if you touch that, it will burn you, even though he has no concept of what that means, the moment he touches it, it could be moments later, hours later, days later, weeks later, whatever, the moment he touches it, he's going to recoil, and he's going to say, oh, I get it. He's not going to say that, but that's what's going I get it. This tingling, throbbing, making me want to cry feeling, that is burn. I get it now. And the disciples to Jesus will be the same. Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus dies and is resurrected, all the disciples scatter. And they hear this story of Jesus being resurrected. And then the light bulb goes off and they say, didn't he say this? Don't you remember him saying that this would happen? How is it that we didn't get it until this point? You see, we facilitate learning by telling people what they can't currently understand. But the other thing that we do is we show the depth of truth and love behind the statement. Because when Thad pulls back, he's going to learn what burn is, but then he's also going to say, this is something my dad wanted to prevent. He was trying to protect me. He was trying to love me. And it takes him all the way back in time to the two minutes before I, when I said that. And he realizes the love that I was showing, the protection that I was showing. Same thing with the disciples here. When they look back, they say, oh... He told us he was going to die. But it wasn't to upset us. It was to show love for us. It was to protect us so that when it happened, we wouldn't do kind of what we did. But now at least we get it. Let me give you another great example. The gospel. Sharing the gospel. Evangelism evaporates if you can't tell people something they don't already understand or they don't currently comprehend. I mean, you can understand how ridiculous this would be. Yeah, I share the gospel just with people who have already responded to it. No, it facilitates learning. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So when you, when I go to someone who has not responded to the gospel, who hasn't recognized that they're a sinner in need of God's grace given to us only through his son, Jesus Christ, and we explain that to them, they may reject it at first. They may have no comprehension of the term sinner, repentance, salvation, Jesus. But the moment they turn from their sin, the moment they respond to the gospel, they look back and they see the person who is willing to have the hard conversation. They see the person who is willing to be socially awkward. The person who is willing to be distinct and different in their world. And they see the love that they were displaying. And so in this teeny little passage, I believe is a call for us to recognize that evangelism is something that God has called us to. Let's keep going. Verse 32. <clears throat> no, there we go. It's on the wrong page. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. 
Now, I should have told you this earlier. What we're going to do, the passage that we're looking at today is about 12 verses long. And your Bible probably breaks it up into three chunks. We're going to take them a chunk at a time. I'm about to finish chunk number one on this, and then we'll move bit by bit. Does that, does that follow? And so it's kind of like a meal. They're going to be boop, boop, three courses. Finishing course number one, verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, Luke 9, 45, they were kept from understanding the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Now, why would they, of all people, be afraid to ask Jesus anything? Jesus was asked questions all the time. Why are they in this moment fearful to ask him why? I mean, this is something else that I've learned from my children. The word why is one of the most powerful words in the entire English language. Because if you say it five times in a row, I almost guarantee you're going to be talking about God. On the way home from dinner last night, can we have dessert? No. Why? Because you acted like little hellions at the table, and I'm not going to reward that kind of behavior. Why? Well, because you were born with a sin nature. Why? This is, this is my life with that. Why? 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 Well, why were you born with a sin nature? Because God recognized that his glory would shine all the brighter in redeeming sinful man. Why? Because he's about his glory. Why? Because that's who God is. I can't give you any more. You can do it with anything. Hey, Will, who do you think the greatest basketball player uh, of all time or currently is? Well, that would be LeBron James, in my opinion. Why? See, you don't believe me. You don't think I can get there, but I can. And it's not even hard. It just happens. I challenge you. To relive having a two-year-old or pretend like you do in one conversation this week. Why do you believe that? Well, because I think he's bigger, stronger, faster, and smarter than just about anybody on the court. Probably everybody. Why? Well, because for whatever reason, he was given those gifts and abilities and he trained himself to be able to do that. Why? Well, he was kind of given those gifts so that he would glorify the one who created him. Why? Well, because God wants glory. It doesn't matter what you do. So why are they so scared to say why? Well, because much like us, they're exceedingly hard-headed. They're so bent on their own sin that they just got stung by it. They just got burned on the oven of God's holiness. And they don't want to get burned again. Flip back one page with me. Look in Mark chapter 8. Now, if you look in verses 31... Jesus, this is not the first time he talked about his death and resurrection. He did it the chapter before. Okay, you ready for your geography lesson? Here we go. This is south and this is north, okay? Up north is Caesarea Philippi. When Robert was speaking, he was talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. They went from Caesarea Philippi up north into the mountains where Jesus was transfigured, and then they came back down to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think that's it. Caesarea Philippi. All right. To get there, they left here in Mark chapter 8. And Jesus, uh, this is verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he says this to them. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. And what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what we signed up for. Don't you see this Roman government that you're supposed to overthrow? We're kind of your right-hand man. We're going to get to be a big deal too in this. Don't get me wrong, Jesus. I'm following you, but look at all these people following us. And you dying is not the model that I have. And Jesus turns to him and he calls him Satan. Why don't they say why when he says this? Because even though they don't get the full concept, they still remember 
from however long ago it was, and I would submit to you that it was not very many days before what just happened with Peter when Jesus turns to him and says, check out verse 33, halfway down, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Get off the ladder. It's not about you. It's never been about you and your greatness. Get off the ladder or I'll push you down by calling you Satan. How does that sound? And here's the geography lesson. So we have Caesarea Philippi here, and they're on their way to Capernaum. If you go back to Mark chapter 9, that's the next verse that I'm going to read. In verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. Now, if you look at the map, the place they were, the place they went, and the place they're going form just about a straight line. And, and the trail is somewhere in the vicinity of 20 to 23 miles. I was a history major, um, and I don't know a whole lot because of that. But I can tell you that in my research... The typical, I was a history major because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just want to talk about Jesus, but I'm not going to seminary right now. I'll learn some history. It'll make for great illustrations later on in life. That was how I picked my major. And so what I can tell you is this. The typical person in biblical times would travel approximately, could travel approximately 20 miles in a given day on good conditions. Now, the place that Jesus and the disciples are traveling is about 20 to 23 miles. You could go two ways with this. I'm not going to take a step back because I'm being a little speculatory in this. One, we could say that Jesus probably walked very slowly. One of his friends died and he wasn't in a rush to get there. So maybe it did take him two days. He was never late. He arrived precisely when he meant to, right? So on one hand, we could say that. On the other hand, we could say this was kind of their profession, walking, talking, preaching. And so we could, on another hand, say an added three miles is not really something that would junk them up. Maybe they made it in just one day. But my point in telling you that is this. They're on the way up to Caesarea Philippi. And if you've ever walked through the woods, this is one of my favorite things to do. If you've ever walked the same trail a time or two in the woods, there don't have to be road signs or markers. You know where you are. Oh, there's the tree with the big hole in it. Oh, there's the place where that squirrel did that funny thing. Whatever it is that, you, that sticks in your mind, right? Well, they're walking most likely the exact same trail. And on the way up, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter gets it right. And then he says, I'm going to die Peter gets it wrong and is strongly rebuked. They're walking back down that same funny bush that they passed just a little earlier. That tree that had the funny knot in it. They remember this path and what's incredible is this. On the way down, Jesus says the exact same thing. You would think this would have their hearts in tune with it. But check out what happens. Here we go in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. 20 to 23 miles away, most likely just a day to journey. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? You see, 
on the way, he had told them he was going to die. And on the way, they were having a discussion. So I can tell you that this discussion happened probably within hours of itself. I'm going to die. Hey guys, what is it that you were talking about? And here's what they were talking about. Verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. How much like the disciples are we? To hear the goodness and the grace of God and so quickly forget it and be so enamored with ourselves. How is it that he can tell us in one week and then he can tell us in another week and it still doesn't sink in? And the only point that I want to make out of this little thing is simply this. We ought to be blown away at the sheer love and faithfulness of our God. The fact that Jesus doesn't, and here's the thing, he knows the thoughts of men. We've seen him do it before. What were you talking about? It's God in the garden. Adam, where are you? God knows where they are. Jesus knows what they were discussing. Why are they bringing it up? So that we would see our own hearts. What is it that you were discussing? Oh, which one of us would be the greatest? Who, what are you lifting up? Are, are we trying to defy physics and lift ourselves, promote ourselves? What are we lifting up? And yet in this, what we find is a God who is faithful upon faithful upon faithful upon faithful for people who do not deserve it. And let me end cap that with this truth. That faith will end. I should say that differently. That opportunity for his faithfulness will end. For those of us who are children of God, it is not going to stop. But for those of us, those of you who have yet to respond to the gospel, those who are still trying to build themselves and trust themselves instead of trusting God, a day is going to come, an hour is going to come where God's going to say, that's it. I've given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and you have rejected me again, and that's it. The clock has chimed. Your heart has stopped. Your breathing is over. Have you responded? But I want us to see the faithfulness that God offers it and offers it and offers it and deals with our brokenness. Let's keep going. <clears throat> and so, what does he do? He takes a child, the Bible says. Verse 35. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, you who are seeking to be great, and not just great, but the greatest. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, this little boy, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus gets them together and in a loving, faithful, forgiving manner, turns around, apparently there was a plethora of children, turns around, how cool to be that kid. I mean, the greatest puppy in the window story, right? I mean, there are probably kids all over the place and Jesus goes and he's like, 
I, I just love that for that kid, right? And then he probably went back and said, did you see that? He says, it's me. And then he got humbled, like immediately. And he tripped and he didn't get picked for kickball the next week, right? Okay, so, but Jesus picks up this child and he puts him in the midst of the disciples. And he says, whatever you do for this, for the least, you do for me. And, and I think the reason Jesus did this is twofold. I think on one hand, it displays God's heart for children. And the truth is this. I am not trying to build up our church in saying this. But if our heart as a congregation, if your heart as an individual is in line with God's, you're going to have a heart for children. I'm not saying you're going to like it. This is one of my favorite sayings of my grandmother. She would look at me and she would say, I don't have to like you. I have to love you. Like, and I remember that. I would do something stupid. This was my life. I would do something dumb. And she would look at me and she would say, the Bible didn't tell me I have to like you. It just tells me I have to love you. And the reason I say that is this. Some of us don't like, I'm not going to say us. I love spending time with kids. I don't know what I'm going to do in like eight years when I'm too old and they don't want to hear from me anymore. I think that's just going to be it. Some meteor I pray is just going to come and burn me up so I don't have to figure out life ministering just to adults. Sorry. I don't want that. I don't want it. I, I, don't, I, I would much rather spend time with kids. I love you. I don't have to like it, right? <laughs> I do. I love you. Y'all are just so much more difficult. Anyway, but you know I'm right. Y'all are. Hardest part of a youth trip. You want to know? I've been doing youth trips for 13 years. You want to know the hardest part? And in saying this, I would love for you guys to be involved. <laughs> the hardest part of a youth trip if you ask Karen Ann, she would say this at the exact same time, are the adults who go. And you want to know why? Because I can have everything planned out by the hour. Everything. And I'll give them the agenda. I'll give them the GPS, the coordinates, the map. Follow us. We want to stay together. Everybody wears your seatbelts. Blip, blip, blip. Right? I do all that. One thing. One thing goes a little off. Right? Uh-oh. Chick-fil-A was too busy. We're going to have to go to Burger King. Will, how are we going to do We've got to get all the kids back in. We've got to get them safely. Are we going to walk? Are we going to ride? Will, what are we? And I'm just like, you realize the kids are fine with this, right? Like, they're not panicking. We're going to make it. We can do this. We can make it to Burger King. I promise you. And if they're busy, we'll make it somewhere else. That's the hardest thing in working with adults. And I have no clue what my point was. Oh, yeah, a heart for children. That wasn't in there. I just figured I'd use my soapbox. Okay. <clears throat> if you as an individual have a heart for God, if we as a church have a heart for God, we are going to have a heart for children. It was brought up today. Ellie, which is a girl, was brought home. Why? Because the McGuire's desired to adopt why? Not because they wanted to build themselves up as though there's some second tier of Christianity for people who adopt. That's a joke. Why? Because they realized that when they were a kid, without hope, doing nothing right and undeserving, their Heavenly Father reached down and saved them. And so they see this girl, and, and especially for adoption in third world countries, we see a child who is most likely without hope, in the world, and certainly the likelihood of them hearing the gospel is slim to none. And we step in to resemble, to point to what God has done for us. If we have a heart for God, we're going to have a heart for children. It's happening right now. 
Right behind that back wall are three classrooms. Over in that corner is another one where adults are sitting down on the ground with kids around them explaining the gospel. Those rooms are a seedbed for the gospel. And they're serving because they have a heart for children because God has a heart for children and they have a heart for God. You see, we don't have to go far off to realize this. In October, um, we're going to have a Pure in Heart conference here at the church. What is a Pure in Heart conference? Well, to give you the nutshell, basically it's a conference that desires to see purity in the hearts of young ladies and to connect their hearts with their mom, recognizing that by the time they move from the kids' church room to the youth room, it's probably far too late to then instill them with what purity is. To then instill them with, how do I live as a girl for God? How do I protect myself? How do I keep myself pure? Why? Because we love kids. We want to see them be able to live a life of joy and not slavery to their own sin and the consequences therein. That's why I was pre- I'm preaching out of Malachi in high, in high school youth. And we were going over chapter 2 this past Wednesday, and divorce is one of the main issues there. And after talking about divorce, which is needless to say a very big and heavy topic in the lives of teenagers, which, which hits home to just about everybody in that room, I had two people come up to me. I had one say, my father is on his third marriage now. And so you talking about divorce helped me see my own life. In the Bible, had another one come up and reshare the story of how he was neglected, abused, and ultimately abandoned by his mom growing up. They're teenagers now, but they weren't when all of these things were happening. They were children. And we would have to be blind and dumb and ignorant not to believe the exact same thing is happening a mile from where you're sitting. A quarter of a mile from where you're sitting. In this moment. If we have a heart for God. We will have a heart for children. And so Jesus grabs that child. But I think the other reason is this. By doing so what he does. Is he takes this triangular structure. Where there are people who serve at the bottom. And those few who lead at the top. And Jesus grabs it. And he flips the whole thing upside down. And he says your desire was renowned from men. You wanted to be lifted up. You wanted to be known as being the guys who casted out demons. Or you want to be known as the successful one. You want to be known as the benevolent one. Or the generous one. Or the one who prays. Put it in whatever your own context is. You've wanted to be known. And now Jesus takes this child. And he sticks it in front of him. And he flips it. Not just in saying. You serve a child. The least of these. Not just men. Because the child had no way of repaying him. There was no money that they could give. That, that child did not have a networking structure to tell people the good deeds that the disciples did for him that the others did, that adults do. But Jesus takes it and he flips it all the way around. He says, here's the deal. You want to run after renown from men? So be it. You're going to blend in with your surroundings. You're not going to be any, anything distinct. You're not going to be anything special in this world. But if you'll serve the least of these, James 1.27, we're probably going to be talking about it in middle school tonight. They're working through the book of James. James 1.27, what is true and undefiled religion? To remember the orphan and the widow and their affliction. You know what true religion is? It's considering the least of these. And Jesus says, for those who do that, 
Not only are you the greatest, but it's credited to you as though you had done it to me. You receive the renown, not of man, but of God. Because God looks down and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So you decide if you want the renown of men, which lasts for a moment, or you want the renown from God, which lasts for all time. But I'll tell you this, if we continue to prop ourselves up and build ourselves up and climb our own ladder, it's going to die with us. If we'll consider the least of these, if we'll serve as Christ served, true greatness exists. There's, um, there's a, a movie that Karen Ann and I watched recently. It's a remake of Les Mis, Les Mis Rob, that uh, Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway did. I don't know if you've seen it. it. It was really good for a musical, which is not my like bag at all. No offense. If that's like your jam, whatever, that's fine. It's just not me. But we watched it, and it was phenomenal. And, and I, I'm reading this as we keep in mind verse 37. Read it with me one more time. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In Les Mis, what you have is a guy, and his name is Jean Valjean. And he, he basically, because his sister had a son who was starving, he went and he stole a handful of bread so that that child would not die. In so doing, he's found out for his thievery, He's captured and he's thrown in prison and ends up being in there for about 19 years working off his penalty. He comes out of that place, a man filled with hate. Okay, and here's the deal. I see some of you looking at each other. I remember reading or watching Les Mis when I was in high school. I get it that this remake may be a little bit different than the actual novel. So for those of you who are like making us, well, you know, the truth was it was actually 18 years and it was supposed to be a five-year sentence, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I get it. All right, let me just make the illustration, okay? I get it. Will watches the movie. He doesn't read the book. I'm convicted. All right? So what happens is he spends 19 years in a slave camp and comes out a hard, bitter, hateful man. And he comes out with a paper, and on it is written, Jean Valjean, a man of violence. And he can't get rid of this paper because if he does, he breaks his parole and he becomes a lifelong criminal. So instead, he carries around with him the sentence that he bore. And whenever he goes to find a job, even if it's just for a day to work to try to get some food, when he goes to try to find a place to sleep, the very first thing that is said to him is, let me see your papers. And he holds them up and they look and they say, get out of here. He spends a night getting beat up in the, in the streets. Until finally he finds himself at the doorstep of a church. And a priest sees him and invites him in. Doesn't ask for his papers. He says, don't you need to see? He said, no, I don't need to see your papers. Come on in. And he shows him the love of God. He feeds him. He gives him a bed right next to his own. A man of violence. Trusted. And what does Jean Valjean do? He steals all the silver in the place. He runs out early that morning before anyone can find him, but he's caught again, and he's dragged in front of this priest. And what does the priest say? He says, I gave those things to him. The only wonder is why he forgot to take these as well. And there were two silver candlesticks that were on the table. And Jean Valjean is lost. 
He's never been shown kindness. He's never been shown grace or mercy. And he's confronted with the mercy and the grace of a loving God who does not forget our offense. And he takes that piece of paper and he destroys it and he makes for himself a new name. And what I want to tell you is this. All of us, by our birth, carried around and carry around, if we have yet to come to Christ, a piece of paper that says Jean Valjean or Will Hawk or whatever your name is. And do you know what's written on it? Not just a man of violence. Sinner. Unacceptable. Unworthy. Non-deserved. Putrid. And a litany of things that would break all of our hearts if we were ever to air them in front of anyone else. But when we come to God, He not only pours on top of us incredible grace and mercy, but He takes that paper and He destroys it and He gives us a new name. A new name akin to the Son of God. And that's good enough for me. I don't want the old name. I don't want the old man and I don't want the old nature. I want to just be known as the Son of God. And when we come to someone in Jesus' name, when I'm in there praying with a student whose parents are divorcing, it's not Will praying this prayer. I'm coming in the name of Christ. I am the hands of Jesus extended to them. When you're in those rooms talking to them about stories that they can't get yet, they can't comprehend it, you are being the person in the name of Jesus. You're the one reaching out to the child. But not that your name would be made great. That his would. And it's not just here. It's when you walk into the college classroom and you see the guy who's obviously had a horrible day, week, month. And you show him grace or love. It's when a soldier walks in here for the first couple weeks. And gets gobbled up by such a loving community that he doesn't end up paying for lunch for three months. I hope you get that, by the way, whoever Ronald was talking about. It's not just here, it's everywhere. Are you the hands of Christ? Because he calls us to be. Let's close out. Our last little chunk is Mark 9, 38 through 40. Here we go. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he wasn't with us. He wasn't following us. Don't worry, Jesus. We saw this guy casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him, okay? Because we know that we're kind of like your guys, and you won't want people doing all of this other stuff. Isn't this us? If it's not us or our group or our church or our political affiliation or our class, societally or economically, whoa, there's a right way to do it, and it's my way, okay? Other people need not apply. And it goes on, it says this, but Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil. I mean, you have to see again that phrase, in my name, because the Buddhist would say to you, you know what? If you want to worship Jesus, that's fine. I, I, I mean, I, I think Jesus is a, a wonderful path for you to take. He's not coming in Jesus' name. That's not what this is talking about when it says, he who is not against us is for us. Do you know what it's talking about? Throw up the points again. It's talking about this. 
Point number two, when we serve as Christ served, we display distinction and bring him glory. What is this distinction? What is it that sets us apart and makes us distinct? You see, we can run around so easily and so often and assume that because another person or church or whatever is doing it differently, then they're doing it wrong. And sometimes that may be true. But if they're coming in the name of Christ, truly in the name of Christ, not just saying it, but if they're truly coming in the name of Christ, it's okay that they do it differently. 1 Corinthians 12, don't you realize that we're all members of one body? We can't all be eyes. We can't all be hands. We can't all be feet. God loves unity out of diversity because it makes us distinct. This was his plan from from the very beginning. A a pastor that I very much respect, John Piper, he, he deals with this passage and he basically said this, and I loved it. He said, there's no problem with being great. There's no problem with wanting to be great because you were created to be great. How do we know this? Well, we look at creation. Genesis 1, we were created in the image of God. Take it a step further. He creates this, good. This, good. Plants, good. Animals, good. Sky, good. Man and woman, very good. We're set apart. Not only that, he looks and he says, I give you dominion over all things. Why? Because it's what we're called to, to administrate this planet. We, we see it not just there. We're called a royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2.9. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that we will judge angels. In Romans 8, we're told that we are co-heirs with Christ. Psalms 86, 9 through 10 reads this way. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. And shall glorify your name. All the nations made. For you are great. And do wondrous things. You alone are God. God loves it. When a diverse group of people. Become unified. Because it shows his distinction. And and it's it's not just about us. He created us in his image. To point to our creator. He created us and gave us dominion to point to the one who has all dominion. He calls us a royal priesthood to display his holiness. He tells us that we will judge angels to point to the just, true, full judge of all things. And he says we're co-heirs with Christ to explain that this is a family. That he is a God who loves his kids. That's what we're supposed to be doing in this world. That's what we're called to do. That's the greatness that we're called to reach for. But the problem is this. Sin steps in and it doesn't change our purpose. Your purpose was still to do great things for the name of God. But what it changes is it changes our perspective. And we stop trying to do great things for God and we start turning it inwardly to ourselves and we turn what was supposed to be a conduit into a cul-de-sac so that everything reflects back on me, Christian or non-Christian alike. And that's why you become invisible if you live like the world. You blend in. I think this is maybe most seen in our marriages. And if you're not married, then carry this with you until you are. And you know what? It's, it's our nature. When I came home from work the other day and Ellis had some hand-me-down. I don't know what it was. 
It was a blue shirt, and it had a silver knight on it. It was really cool looking. Like, I wish I had one. And it had, like, Celtic writing with the year 1474. I don't even know what happened. History major, right? Um, but I looked at it, and I said, Ellis, that is an awesome shirt. Where did you get that? He doesn't know. I don't know why I asked the question. Where did you get that? And he was, he was looking at it within a millisecond of those words coming out of my mouth. You know what my two-year-old did? He comes out with ratty old pajama pants that have been passed down to him from whoever passed them down to Ellis. He's not wearing a shirt. He never does. We never do when we're at home. And so he, that did conflict with what I just said about Ellis. We rarely wear a shirt. So he is in true colors. Ellis is the one who's dressed up. He's wearing clothes. He comes to me in these striped pajama pants. And the moment I say, Ellis, that's an awesome shirt. He goes, Dad, do you not recognize these beautiful pajama pants that I'm wearing? They're vintage. They've been passed down. And you see, the problem wasn't that they desired to be great. It's that Thad was desiring to be greatest. Oh, if you're going to recognize him, let me climb on top. Look at me. Look at me. And when I think about my marriage, unity out of diversity, bringing distinction and glory to God. Is there unity? Yeah, absolutely. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The two shall become one, this profound mystery. The Bible tells me that there's unity. Is there diversity? Anytime we pick a restaurant. Is there diversity? Anytime there's a major decision to be made. Is there diversity? Anytime she remains a female and I remain a male, there's diversity. Is there distinction? I wish there was more. Why is it that the church's divorce rate and the world's divorce rate are so synonymous? Why have we lost our distinction? Why is it, I walked outside a couple of days ago and just to check on the boys playing in the backyard and Ellis was at the fence talking with Carl, our neighbor. And I just stopped to watch it because I thought it was neat to watch my four-year-old talk with an adult. And so I just watched him for a few minutes and then I walked up and I said, hey to Carl. And he was talking to me about Ellis having an adult conversation and that was great. And he said something to me. We, we've lived there since we've been married. We've been married for seven years now. And we've lived in that house every day of those seven. Carl and Cheryl have been our neighbors Carl is, um, he's a trucker, and he and his wife used to travel together, but they had an accident, and so she's paralyzed now from the waist down, and she's in a wheelchair. And so sometimes he'll come to me and he'll say, hey, I'm going to be out of town for a few days. Will you keep an eye on the house? We love our neighbors, and they love us. And he said something to me a few days ago. He said, Will, I feel like we've watched your family bloom. We've known you from before you've had kids. And we feel, Cheryl and I talk about just how much you bloom. How much you're distinct. And I'm not building myself up because you know what I know? When that door closes, there's not that much distinction. When I get frustrated, there's not that much distinction in will and the world. Do I want my marriage to be distinct? Absolutely, yes. But is it? I wish it was more. I wish that people could look at my marriage and see the face of God. But so many times, I feel like they look at my marriage and they just see my busted up nature. Why? Well, because he's not done with me yet. And he's not done with you yet. 
But I want us to understand that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He tells us. But what I want you to know is this. Your life was supposed to be a city on top of a hill shining into the darkness that those in darkness would see it and grasp for it. Your marriage, the way that you go through the college campus, the way that you drive your car, the way that we speak was supposed to be so distinct that there would be no question that we were carrying the name of Jesus everywhere we went. And my conviction in reading this is that. Where's my distinction? Where is our distinction culturally? Why do we look so much like the world we live in if we've really bought into the fact that Jesus tells us to serve the least of these? But instead we climb and we try to lift and we try to be seen and we worry about how we're perceived and the perspective that people have on us and what they think about us. But the plan was always I mean, you look at it this way. What's the greatest diversity? A holy God and a sinful man. That's the greatest diversity. And what did he do? He unified the two that one would be distinct. The nation of Israel, God's own people. Romans eleven eleven tells us that his plan was to bring the Gentiles in. Diverse, you better believe it. Did they become distinct? Yeah, they did. And so I kind of just close out this morning asking you this. What are you lifting up? What is it or who is it that we're lifting and promoting? Is it the least of these that God would be made great? Or is it our own selves? When we seek our own glory, we're indistinguishable from the world. You want to disappear? Seek your own glory. You want a life that doesn't matter? Seek your own glory. You want to live it and look back and realize you've wasted it? Seek your own glory. But when we serve as Christ served, when we love as Christ loved, we display distinction, just like he created us for. A great distinction, and we bring him glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. Father, I thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I thank you. That you didn't see us and leave us far off, but you displayed the greatest love for us. And that while you were holy and we were not, Father, you sent your son. And so, Lord, I I really just pray for me and I, I pray for everybody in this room. I pray that we would grab hold of that truth. Our lives vanish if we make it about ourselves. But he who wants to gain his life must lose it. And so I pray And I ask God that those in this room who have not repented of their sins and turned to Christ would do that today. I pray that they would do it for your glory. That they would do it, that their lives would count for something. That they would do it so that the walk that they make in this this planet, in this place, God, that it would matter. And I pray for those of us who have been walking with you for years and can look in our own lives and say, there's no distinction here. I look just like everybody else here. That your spirit would come and that you would grow us and you would disciple us and you would train us. That you would sanctify us by your grace that we may be distinct. And in the areas where we are, we give you all the glory and all the praise and ask only that your name be made great. Father, we just want to 
lift you up. You lifted us. May the rest of our lives be focused on lifting you. And it's in the name of your son I pray. Amen.